So there's going to be all sorts of noise on this, but that's fine. This is the sound of pandemic parenting for our listeners. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right, sweetie. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 182 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and at the weekend I high-fived an otter, got dribbled on by a wallaby and booped a fox on the snoot with a special stick. You were literally living inside a local newspaper page three picture story (laughs) at the weekend. I love it, I'd do it again I tell you. (laughs) What was the special stick? They were click training the fox so Copper the fox would come and put his nose on the stick Then you'd click a little button and give him a treat so that he knew that if he did that, he got a treat. Hiya. Hiya. Hello. (laughs) I'm Hannah Donlevy and I've been working on my roast potato game. Cooking or eating? Code for both, obviously. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's right. (laughs) When you're trying, Lyra, to make the perfect roast potatoes, it's always best to make them in volume and then just eat them all anyway, I discovered. (laughs) I think everyone involved in this chat applauds your heroics there, Hannah. Yeah. I'm Jen Offord and I'm joined by a special guest. (laughs) We're in another Covidsville situation. So, here we are, recording a podcast. It's very very easy to do with an 18-month-old. The youngest member of the Standard Issue team. I'm very excited about her five-minute monologue on feminism that's coming up later in the show. The youngest and the third most mature. (laughs) I'm not going to ask which order you're putting us in. Later on, sewist Mandy Barrage talks to me about pattern making, visible diversity in sewing and how the phenomenal success of Make With Mandy took her by surprise. I chat to Steph Douglas, founder and CEO of Don't Buy Her Flowers, about how to do thoughtful gifting and why women get rubbish gifts. And in Jenny Off The Blocks, I'm talking about a symbolic FA Cup final. And in Rated or Dated, we discover the very worst thing that can happen to a woman is for her to become a librarian. (gasps) As we watch 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. But first, big US trials and small British bus drivers. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Looking at things that have happened in the past, unlike the police. Apparently. Hmm. Did you see Boris Johnson dressed in his police uniform? I did. I did. I tweeted about how, you know, if dressing up is turning out to be as much of the job as it is, can we not just have Lucy Worsley in charge, please? And thank you. <laughs> uh, is there somewhere I can vote for this? I'm, I'm game. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm looking into it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, mate. Let's leave this country. Over in America last week, the US Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Mississippi case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that has been called the most important abortion rights case in almost half a century. And by that, we're talking a case that could gut or reverse Roe v. Wade to redefine reproductive rights across the country. And that'll have repercussions abroad for generations. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization deals with the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi state law that banned abortion operations after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. This is basically the leadership of Mississippi, Dobbs, versus the state's last abortion clinic, Jackson Women's Health Organization. And after the hearing on December the 1st, it's not looking great for pro-choice. Now, fears around a weakening or wholesale reversal of Roe v. Wade have been a near constant since, well, since the landmark decision of Roe v. Wade back in 1973. 
Just to clarify, Roe v. Wade was the case in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. It protects the right to an abortion up to the point a fetus can survive outside the womb, widely regarded as 24 weeks gestation. This, however, and this is key, was never enshrined in US law, which is a problem if you believe women and pregnant people should have a say in what happens to their body, like I do. Yeah, I mean, agreed. Because it turns out a lot of US states do not. We've recently seen a huge pushback on women's rights in Texas, where since September, abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy are illegal. The Supreme Court was asked to step in. It refused. For a long time, the Supreme Court has maintained Roe v. Wade, but the death of fierce fighter for women's rights, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Trump's last-minute push-through of Amy Coney Barrett means that now six out of nine Supreme Court justices are right-leaning. It's what's termed a conservative supermajority, although there's very little that's super about it. In fact, justices could have dismissed Mississippi's law as unconstitutional under Roe, so it's telling that instead the court chose to take the case, indicating at least four justices see a reason to revisit the historic ruling. Furthermore, although the decision to this case won't come until next June, at last week's hearing, a majority of justices appeared willing to significantly curb abortion rights. Lynn Fitch, who is Mississippi's Attorney General, is the driving force behind the Dobbs part of Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organisation, arguing that she's doing so to, quote, empower women. Now, when it comes to women, the word empower gets bandied around willy-nilly with scant regard for what it actually means a lot. But yeah. this takes the biscuit barrel. Yeah, I mean, this is worse than when they tell me pants are empowering or, <laughs> you know, crutchless pants are empowering. I mean, I guess a ban on abortion might feel empowering if you're a 60-year-old wealthy white woman who employed a nanny to help raise her kids. But it very much isn't if you're poor and live in Texas, where the system is quite clearly collapsing. And if Roe is overturned, 26 states are expected to move to outlaw abortion in various ways through state constitutional amendments, trigger laws which go into effect as soon as possible should Roe be overturned, or limits on abortion beginning at six weeks gestation, before most people know they are pregnant. Removing someone's rights is not empowering and abortion bans don't work. We've said it before and we'll say it again. You can only ban safe abortions. And this is, of course, happening much closer to home too. Poland's strict laws on abortion, which is now only permitted in cases of rape or incest or when pregnancy threatens a mother's health or life, have resulted in the death of a 30-year-old pregnant woman known as Isabel from sepsis because doctors feared breaking Poland's restrictive abortion laws. Abortion Without Borders does incredible work helping women and pregnant people in Poland access safe abortions, and you can chuck them a bit of cash at abortion.eu. Yeah, it's really worrying, isn't it? It's really worrying. The problem is how they got it through. I mean, I know we didn't get abortion through in a perfect fashion because the loophole of it still being illegal was why women in Northern Ireland weren't mm -hmm. able to have abortions. But because in America, they went through the courts in that sense and they rely on rulings. It's never as set in stone as it is here. And it's really baffling because I saw someone say, I mean, I would like to take credit for this as a point, but it wasn't mine. But it was somebody replying to, I believe, Mike Pence or Ted Cruz or someone who was on Twitter. And they were like, it's funny how you understand 
in human nature that banning guns won't mean that there won't be any guns, but you don't seem to understand that banning abortions doesn't mean that there won't be any abortions. It's not protecting life, it's protecting the patriarchy. So, still in America. Wow, this is how you feel better about living here. Just focus on how (laughs) terrible it is everywhere else. (laughs) So, reluctant as I am to become our big US trial correspondent since the Carl Rittenhouse chat went so well, here we are again. And by so well, I mean some of you actually got in touch to say you were grateful for the information and nobody called me a Nazi, so thank you for that. (laughs) There's still time. (laughs) And now, not one, not two, but three huge trials taking place across the water. Hang on, does that mean we've had four trials of the decade in less than a month? Yes, it does, Media Machine. (laughs) Yes, it does. I'm going to start with probably the best and least known person of the three in the dock, Jelaine Maxwell, youngest daughter of media mogul and now dead pension thief, Robert. And <laughs> Sorry, I really hope that's on his gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> and partner, and I've put that in quotes, so take that to mean whatever the fuck you want it to, uh-huh. of now dead paedophile friend of the stars, Jeffrey Epstein. Ditto on the tombstone there. <laughs> The trial of Maxwell, who is charged with sex trafficking, opened with her lawyers offering a heady mix of feminism and, checks notes, the Bible, to summarise their case. Bobby Sternheim said, Ever since Eve was tempting Adam with the apple, women have been blamed for the bad behaviour of men. (laughs) What the actual fuck? Is that defence likely to hold up? Who knows? (laughs) But given most of the interest in the trial seems to be in the names of powerful men who may or may not have visited Epstein in order to abuse underage girls, Maxwell does seem to be fading into the background of her own trial, so maybe it will. Also taking the who, little helpless lady me, defence is Elizabeth Holmes, an entrepreneur accused of tricking investors out of millions of dollars by making false claims about her firm Theranos including that its technology could detect diseases with a single drop of blood. There are several podcasts dedicated to Holmes' story if you're interested in learning more about the quite audacious claims she made. And her seemingly curated persona, including only dressing in black polar neck jumpers and deliberately lowering her voice like she'd gone on to Newsnight to apologise for something. Holmes, now 37, took to the stand last week to argue that rather than running the show, she was in the midst of a decade-long abusive relationship with Theranos Chief Operating Officer and President Ramesh Sunny Bulwani, who she said tried to control nearly every aspect of her life. Bulwani denies the accusations. It's one of Holmes's other claims about Theranos that it could totally beat Thor in a fight. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean... Some of the shit she was saying was pretty (laughs) wild, so maybe, yeah. And finally, we have the trial of actor Juicy Smollett. I don't actually know. I've actually Googled how to pronounce that, and everybody else seems to pronounce it differently. So here we are. The only one of the three defendants to be famous outside of the events of their trial or the events that caused their trials, and likely to be the first to receive a verdict. He's accused of hiring two men to commit a fake hate crime against him, which he then reported to Chicago police. His defence team is straight up denying that claim, saying the hate crime was real and the previous connection between the actor and the two brothers who, quotes, attacked him is not relevant. 
Obviously, I've got no time to go into huge details about any of these trials, but you know, they are actually all super interesting. Mm -hmm. So keep your eye on them. And by that, I mean, read about them in as many sources as possible. It's odd that they're all going on at the same time, because I think they all actually do speak to something like the Maxwell trial. It's like, it's all about like, you know, power, isn't it? It's a really fucking evergreen Mm. story about powerful men and like what they do. And the Theranos story is that age-old story about sort of greed and science and, you know, the desire to be pushing boundaries, even if you can't actually do it. And the Jesse Smollett one is like, yeah. And the Jesse Smollett one is just about, well, it's just about so 2020s as a story that it's just sort of like a time capsule, fascinating. Obviously, all currently innocent. So we'll wait and see what happens. And the interesting thing, because they are on trial in America, is we will get much more information than we would if they were on trial here, right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, we can say what we like within the realms of, you know, the morality of saying that they are currently all still innocent. You can't affect a jury trial in America. Would you like some good news, Hannah? Yes, please. It was announced last week that Booker Prize winning author Bernadine Evaristo, who has been on our show, of course she has, is to be the new president of the Royal Society of Literature. Taking over the role at the end of the year when current president Marina Warner retires, Evaristo will be the first writer of colour to hold the position. Hooray! Two, I mean, I'm hooraying that she is now going to be holding the position rather than it's taken this fucking long. (laughs) Also, two women on the trot is exciting, although worth noting that it makes Evaristo only the second female president in the society's 200-year history. Still, this is the good news section. I will not be distracted. Evaristo said, storytelling is embedded in our DNA as human beings. It is sewn into the narrative arc of our lives. It is in our relationships, desires and conflicts. And it is the prism through which we explore and understand ourselves and the world in which we live. Literature is not a luxury, but essential to our civilization. I am so proud, therefore, to be the figurehead of such an august and robust literature organisation that is so actively and urgently committed to being inclusive of the widest range of outstanding writers from every demographic and geographical location in Britain. That is good news. Hey, Joan. Sorry, I've got my own Lyra going on here now. <laughs> Although... Yeah, why is Jen complaining? We've been pairing <laughs> in throughout the pandemic the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, and Lyra will one day learn, and Joan never, ever will. More news next week. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we say, why do I sit so close to the steering wheel? So firefighters have a particularly difficult time cutting me out of my car Mm -hmm. because that seems fun slash time consuming slash deleterious to my life expectancy. Mm. And so to Manchester, where 34 years after she became one of the first female bus drivers in the city, Tracy Scholes has been given notice at her job because new wing mirrors installed by her bosses are in a different position, meaning at five foot, Tracy can no longer reach the pedals and look in the mirrors at the same time. Uh, Why can't she just grow a few more inches? So fucking selfish. Yeah, to be clear, that's what I was screaming at. Fucking Mm. Tracy, come on. Come on, Tracy. According to the Manchester Evening News, the 57-year-old's colleagues have started a petition which now has more than 1,700 signatures. To be fair, that petition is in support of her. And her union is involved with a Unite spokesman adding, quote, 
Go Northwest have refused to consider proposals from Tracy and her Unite Trade Union reps to keep her in employment. This has resulted in her unfair dismissal from Go Northwest for capability to fulfil her role as a PCV driver. The company's only resolution is to offer Tracy a position in the company that would see Tracy's pay and hours cut significantly, leaving her in financial hardship. I mean, to restate, she could try having a late stage growth spurt in her 50s. Sure. I'm pretty sure there's some experimental treatment a disgraced doctor now operating <laughs> out of the back of a Mexican bar could offer her. Why aren't you trying that, Tracy? <laughs> Go Northwest themselves have this to say. Unfortunately, a situation has arisen. Just arisen, Mickey. It just arose. <laughs> but the problem is it, it just... hasn't arisen. It stayed the same height. <laughs> it literally it just arose. Where we have had to bring a driver's employment to an end. This is a complex case again. I mean, it's really complex. Like, it's so complex. It's just about where we move the mirrors. Anyway, mm. this is a complex case and the appeals process is ongoing. Therefore... We are unable to comment further at this stage. I mean, what's a company to do if women keep insisting on plateauing (laughs) at five foot? Who is really to blame? I think you've answered that question yourself, haven't you, Hannah? How tall are you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm Tracy size. Yeah. Those dreams of being a bus driver in Manchester are squashed forever. It's funny, though. It wasn't until I read Invisible Women it finally occurred to me that, I mean, I've got an uncle who's a firefighter and, you know, my brother's got a friend who's been a firefighter and they both constantly say, oh, it worries me how close you sit to, like, your steering wheel. And I'm like, what are the options? Not reach the brake? Just have, like, Tom Cruise-style lifts in all of your shoes for when you're yeah. driving. I'm five foot eight and I sit really close to the driving to the, 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 the driving disc, the steering wheel. <laughs> Clearly shouldn't be allowed in a car. The driving disc. Lines and lines and lines and lines. (laughs) Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Mandy Barrage, pattern maker and super sewist, shaking up the Instagram sewing community. And also, I'm lucky to say, a bloody smashing pal. Mandy, hello. Hi, Mickey. Thanks for coming on, mate. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. Do you know what I was super excited about? And it's when I was looking up how to introduce you and I found out that sewers like to be called sewists rather than sewers because sewer reads like sewer. Yeah, I think it's quite popular in America. Because otherwise I'd be like, she's a really good sewer and that's different. (laughs) It's different. So tell us, when did you first start getting into sewing? My mum, when she came over from India, she started working in factories because back in the day in India, you had to learn how to sew as a child. And it was all kind of around that whole, you need to embroider your own wedding bits and pieces as part of your dowry. So as well as the skill of being able to cook and clean, you needed to be able to sew as well. So my mum learned sewing when she was in India. And then when she came over, she couldn't speak any English and so she set about trying to find a job and went to factories and started working in factories over in East Ham in East London. She's always sewed, that kind of became her profession. I was born here in the UK. As we were growing up, she would always sew, she'd either be at factories or she'd sew at home. 
we were just surrounded by it. So she'd have this little cardboard box under her sewing machine that had all the scraps in. So when she wasn't using her machine, me and my older sister used to jump on there and we'd just find like our favorite colors that we could. And we'd make little dresses for our Barbie dolls and our trolls. And then we'd always make scrunchies. There were so many scrunchies in our house. So <laughs> we just always grown up with sewing being around us. And I never realized how lucky I was because it just was always around me. I went on to do fashion at university, much to my parents' uh, disapproval, because obviously they wanted me to go through a very academic route. They sent me to a private school as well. You know, they were really pushing the academia and um, I just was more creative. So I didn't want to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. Mm -hmm. And when I said to my dad at the time, I was kind of thinking, oh, I wanted to do something with art. I didn't know it was specifically fashion. My dad said, well, artists only make money when they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) He has got a point, but... uh... (laughs) Uh, Okay, (laughs) well, that's not really my plan. So yeah, I went down the fashion route. So I studied fashion at Derby University It took my parents quite a long time to accept that I'd gone down this creative route. But then in my final year at university, we put together a menswear collection and it went down the catwalk. And because my mum was such a super pro sewer, I asked her to come and stay with me for a week. And she stayed and she helped me sew my final collection and she loved it. And I think we really bonded over that because I've not had the best relationship with my mum as I was growing up. And I think we had that commonality and she felt like she didn't have that education you know Mm -hmm. she loved being at university and seeing all the facilities that we had and yeah it was just fantastic so it's always been around me and it's only recently that I've realized how much of a skill it is since I've set up my little brand. You've got a busy full-time job and a very hectic social life What made you want to enter the influencer sewing space as a pattern maker and sort of pick up again that love of sewing? With my full-time job, I travel a lot. Pandemic obviously meant that I couldn't travel, which was really welcome for me. (laughs) It meant that I could stay at home and get on with the hobbies that I always moaned about not having enough time for. So I love pattern cutting. I absolutely love the mindfulness, the technicality of it. I would quite happily just pattern cut something and not even want to sew it up. I just love the process of it. So I made myself a pattern to make myself a dress in the summer of 2020. And I posted a picture of myself on Instagram and a friend of mine in Canada, she messaged me and she said, oh, can you send me the pattern, please? And I was like, well, no, because I've literally just drafted this on some newspaper. It fits me like it's bespoke. And it just got me thinking. I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that this was a thing, really, because I'd never bought a sewing pattern. I'd always just drafted my own. My mum never worked from patterns. She just drafted straight onto fabric. It wasn't something that I was overly familiar with. And then I started looking into it, and all of a sudden I saw this huge sewing community on social media. And, you know, there's all these people that are making their own patterns or making their own clothes and posting about it on Instagram And I thought, oh, I could do this. I've got the skills to do this. You know, I've got a degree in fashion. I love pattern cutting. I know how to use all these various programs. I can sew. So I started to do it and, uh, you know, had great ambitions to (laughs) take over the sewing world. Um, (laughs) And it's gone really, really well. But it's been really, really hard work. And I think one of the things that I really 
feel really, really passionate about is showing other people that they can do it and particularly people who look like me, so who aren't white. I'm British Indian. You know, I really want to champion other people to have a go at this because I didn't realise until 2020 how much of a skill this was that I had. I just thought everybody knew how to sew and I didn't realise that, you know, I still can't get my head around it. I've been asked to run a workshop and, you know, I'm like thinking of all these like really technical things and the person who I'm running the workshop for was just like, yeah, we just want to know how to understand a pattern. And I was like, really? That would be interesting to people. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but yeah, you know, one of the real main driving forces behind Make With Mandy is seeing other people like yourself so that you can relate to it you relate to them on social media because I found that when I joined social media with my sewing brand that majority of the people were white and middle class and I was really shocked by that because obviously where I've learned my skill from is from a lady in India who had to learn it as part of her journey of growing up and becoming a wife and there must be so many skilled non-white people who have got this in their heritage they're not represented on social media for whatever reason you know they might not feel comfortable I do know a few Indian sewists and they often conceal their faces on social media and you know maybe it's just not for them that they want to be putting themselves out there in such a way because maybe they are a little bit more private and on my personal social media I was always quite private I would never post a picture of my face but somehow I've found myself <laughs> posting and using my name as my brand I just really want other people to see me and think actually I can do that and I think a lot of that is born out of just struggling being a British Indian and where you fit in and I was listening to one of your previous podcasts with a a comedian I can't remember where she's from but she's done a show at Soho Theatre about being a coconut I can't oh, remember the exact Jambi name Oh McGrath yeah from Kenya isn't she yeah I remember now sorry and you know I really resonate with that because my mum always calls me a coconut and just this weekend when I've seen her you know because I am not a stereotypical Indian person yeah it's been a struggle I think growing up so I just want people to see that a British Indian can be successful in this field that you know I can be up amongst other people and my skin colour shouldn't really come into it but I want other people who might be feeling that they can't succeed in this field to see me and think oh yeah she's doing it I'm going to give it a go because they probably have more skills than the majority of those white people that are on social media saying they can sew absolutely and I love that your ninja qualities of your personal Instagram account are just out the window because not only is mate with Mandy flying and you've got loads of followers and your face is all over it but you're also in magazines and you're talking about this you're on our podcast I think people were clearly in need of what you're offering because you have gone from a newbie to a name really fucking quickly could you give us give the listeners a little idea of your timeline the background work of making patterns takes quite a long time but I actually sold my first pattern on boxing day 2020 and that was kind of you know a really awesome moment and since then I've been in like subscription packs I sell on my Etsy I've got my own website never knew anything about websites um you know I've had a website since March and uh 
yeah, I'm selling through some of the big pattern online communities, such as the Bold Line, as well as my own website. I recently have just released my first free PDF sewing pattern in collaboration with a very big Australian sewing magazine called Peppermint Magazine. Mm -hmm. They're really, really well known in the home sewing community. When I started this brand, I didn't know where it would take me. And I'm still on a journey of finding out because so many aspects of this are really new to me. And I listened to a few podcasts about business and they said, you know, write down the people that you would really like to collaborate with and it doesn't matter how famous or big they are just put them on the top of your tree and I did that and Peppermint was one of the businesses that I really really wanted I could not dream that my pattern would be in their magazine so I emailed them and I said I love what you're doing about your size inclusivity but I really feel like there needs to be more diversity in terms of color in the sewing community and I just left it at that and I said you know I'd love to collaborate with you if you ever thought that would be an option And about a month later, I got an email sat in my junk from them and they were like, we'd love to collaborate with you. And I just couldn't believe it. So I had a little tear with my husband. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, the collaboration came about and it just released. I'm so chuffed that I was given that opportunity to be able to do that. And I think, you know, massive round of applause to that magazine as well for like, really championing diversity because I know that there are other magazines in the sewing community that have kind of been called out for not really doing that and so you know anybody that actually puts their money where their mouth is like gets a big tick from me. And a massive round of applause to you for challenging them and having the balls to write that email because I think a lot of us think oh that needs to change but don't feel that we can do anything about it and you put your money where your mouth was and you know sent off an email I think that's amazing and there's actually another ambition that you had on your tick list that you've already achieved isn't there? I'm also in collaboration with another magazine which is due out next year they've chosen one of my patterns I'm not going to reveal which one it is to be used in a pattern envelope which again for me this was like a goal that I couldn't even imagine in like 10 years of doing this that I would have got to that end goal. And when I featured in a magazine for the first time, I sent a a copy of it to my mum and I hadn't told her what, you know, that it was coming or anything. She waited for me to be with her and she opened it and the envelope patterns fell out and she was like oh are these yours and I was like mum <laughs> like they had simplicity <laughs> written on them which is a very very big pattern brand that's been around for decades I was like no mum I'll never be in one of those just to manage your expectations and lo and behold next year one of my patterns will actually be in a pattern envelope so yes there's another great magazine I don't know if I can say who it is right now but um they're also um yeah, been very supportive of me and I really, really appreciate that. So follow at Mate with Mandy and you'll find out when she is allowed to announce that. But that whole pace seems quite dizzying. And given that you went in with no real plan and, you know, it wasn't something that you've been aiming to do your whole career or anything, how has that felt? I still haven't found my feet with it, I think. I don't know exactly where I want my brand to go, what I do want to keep doing is just keep representing people from a diverse background there are times when I think about these magazine collaborations I also have another magazine collaboration that's um with a new Finnish magazine which is really exciting 
and um you know all these collaborations I was like I couldn't imagine that this would happen to me and all of a sudden I've gone from feeling quite invisible and definitely in the minority to now like whoa I'm out there Mm -hmm. in magazines you know my globe these are like global magazines I'm like getting out there and I don't know it feels quite exposing at times because if you're from an ethnic minority you're often feel like you're right at the end of the queue for opportunities you're disregarded much easier and quicker you know there's shows on telly such as the great british sewing bee they have like we want a person from this background and they would have a number of how many people they wanted to be from a certain color or from a certain age group and you know you're kind of you're already restricted with Mm -hmm. what people think you can do because of the color of your skin so to now have these doors open for me I'm a bit overwhelmed I don't know I don't know what to do keep going through them that's what you do keep going through them I am I am I mean I'm you know my mum said to me she said you just never let it be, do you? Because <laughs> I was the one that sent them the email. And then I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> they've actually replied and they want me to do it. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, no, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I did mean it. <laughs> it doesn't help, I suppose, with if you've got any feelings of like imposter syndrome or insecurities about things like that, then this positive discrimination may accentuate those sort of feelings I think I feel quite lucky right now because I don't feel like that's playing on my mind but Mm -hmm. that's today you know today's a good day who knows another day I might think oh my goodness you know I haven't got my head around it I'm a firm believer in positive discrimination because I think what's happened in the past is so unacceptable that people from minority groups do need that positive discrimination However, there also needs to be an understanding that actually what comes with that is suddenly going from like zero to hero and it's quite extreme. And we've been used to trying to blend in and sit in the background because we don't want people, well, this is my personal perspective on things, you know, I didn't want people to notice me because the first thing they would notice is the colour of my skin. So I didn't want to be noticed and now I'm emailing magazines and going hey look at me (laughs) (laughs) I mean hooray I'm really proud of you listeners Mandy's got a pattern called the Waller jumpsuit and if I was able to sew without probably just like covering whatever material I was using in blood and screams then I would be making the Waller jumpsuit in like six different colors it just looks so comfortable and cool you know and that's the dream isn't it comfy and chic my patterns are just very true to who I am I don't dress in like a revealing manner or anything so I would always design something that I've got to want to wear it because it takes so long to make a pattern that I just would lose interest if it was something that I didn't want to wear and didn't believe in so for me comfort comes first like I'm not into wearing really tight things or really revealing things so I like comfort before fashion so all of my patterns are about just being super comfortable and just enjoying like what you wear and I think there's so much chat in the sewing community about 
how your body shouldn't have to fit into the clothes you know like the clothes should fit you and Mm -hmm. that's why a lot of people make their own clothes and if you're going to go to the trouble of making your own clothes because it does take a lot of time and it can be quite costly you want to have something that you feel really good in and that's the main driver for me when I design my patterns I've just got to love it I've got loads of ideas of things that I want to make just don't have enough time (laughs) you don't make all your own clothes now do you I don't because (laughs) so when we were growing up I think it felt like a bit of a um a negative to have your clothes Mm. made for you like your mum made you your clothes basically because you couldn't afford to buy the clothes that you actually wanted so my mum would make them for us and I tell you if I showed you some of the pictures of the things that she's made us yes very 80s but (laughs) flipping brilliant (laughs) like so skillful I gotta find some of these pictures they are insane I never saw making your own clothes as a thing that people I thought you'd get picked on because you made your own clothes (laughs) so and now I'm like discovering this whole world where people are like you know they're getting insta famous for making their own clothes and I'm like well I could have been doing that all along (laughs) I mean you're catching up really quickly so I wouldn't worry about it you're gonna be queen of the sewing bee there's so much more that I want to make I've got stashes of fabric and ideas and everything it's just having the time to be able to do it unfortunately working full-time and having this little business as a side hustle one of the really lovely things through having this business is that other people start to notice you and they ask you to they commission you to do little projects for them which I've really enjoyed but that's the hazard of turning your hobby into something that you make money from I don't have the time to sew my own clothes anymore now that I've realized it's actually on trend I haven't got time to do it (laughs) what is the best make with Mandy pattern to start with I would say for a beginner the best pattern to start with is the bolt collots and they are one of my absolute favorite pants to wear super comfy it's got an elasticated waistband and a flat front it means that they look pretty smart on the front but they're super comfy because they've got elastic on the back chic at the front nano at the back sign me up oh absolutely and you can modify them to make them shorter or longer if you want to they've got a really nice wide leg my patterns go from a size a uk size six to a 26 and with the bulk a lot there are some little youtube tutorials as well for some of the trickier bits if people needed help with that all of my instructions come with photos so you can follow them step by step it you know i put a lot of care and attention into doing the instructions if you know you buy one of my patterns you can always message me and i'm always up for giving you extra guidance if i can Instagram's the best place to get me it's make with mandy also i'm on facebook and you can access my youtube channel through my website which is www.makewithmandy.com i'm worth pointing out that mandy is with an i good point (laughs) (laughs) mandy it's an absolute joy talking to you and watching you fly thank you so much for sparing me some time because it doesn't sound like you've got very much This has been a really great opportunity and I just hope if anybody takes anything away from this, just it inspires somebody to just do something that they thought that they couldn't do. And if you have a thought that you think people can do, you know, businesses can do something better, 
maybe just email them and let them know that you're thinking about it and uh yeah if you do take any action based on listening to this podcast please email me or message me i'd love to hear from you oh and see now everyone has to go and do something good work thank you (laughs) oh just make a cup of tea that's fine (laughs) (laughs) i'm joined by steph douglas founder of don't buy her flowers hello steph how are you Hello, I'm good, thank you. I'm all right. <laughs> Excellent. You're just getting over COVID, aren't you? So just getting over COVID. So sorry about my nasal voice, but I can't help it. <laughs> the, the listeners have. We were just talking about this off air, as it were, but the listeners have had to listen to my snotty voice for oh, like seven months now since my daughter started nursery. So, um, so don't worry. You're you're in good company. So, first of all. I would like to know a little bit more about Don't Buy Her Flowers. Can you describe to us what what it is and the sort of ethos behind it? Yeah, sure. So we call ourselves a thoughtful gift company. So I had my first baby 11 years ago and um, motherhood wasn't quite what I was, I was expecting. I was felt really overwhelmed and emotional and ragey and all the different things, mad hormones. And I, the doorbell started ringing and I kept getting these flowers arriving, these bouquets, which were lovely, well-meant bouquets. I think I had about eight and I, we lived in a little house. We just got married. Like I didn't have eight vases for a start. And it just struck me as a really bizarre gift. Like the, the, I, I, I didn't know what I was expecting from motherhood, but I wasn't expecting it to be as hard as it was. (laughs) And so these flowers would turn up and I just was like, I've got to do something with that. I've got to, put them in something I've got to think about it and I feel completely spent and I'm not cleaning my teeth till like five o'clock so how am I going to do that and that was kind of the crux of the idea I at that point lots of my friends were having babies and I'd send them some chocolate and a magazine or something but always with a note that said like this is for you I hope you're okay because I just realized that I don't think many people are actually asking new mums if they're okay and quite often they're probably not even if it's short-lived that was the core of the idea. So we launched, and I didn't start a business straight away. I went on and had another baby. That was my first two kids. I've got three now. And I just, the idea was kind of just sitting there and I was working in brand and marketing. So I'd gone back to work, but I also then was like, this is rubbish because I was trying to rush out of work and get back from London and pick up nursery, all that stuff. And just sort of all kind of came together to go, yeah, I think I can find a better path than this. But we launched this gift for new mums and the idea was it was products that were like, would encourage someone to have a bit of a sit down. So in giving someone that gift, you're kind of saying, I know that you probably haven't sat down very much. I know that you haven't had a hot cup of tea. So you had a package of thermos mug or, you know, you've microwaved it five times and still not managed to drink it, that kind of thing. And so everything was thought through on that basis, but really quickly, after we launched, we had people saying, oh, I want to send something like this, but for get well or for my friend who's had a bad time or a breakup or all these occasions. And actually, it's the same thing. It's like a, an occasion where somebody just needs a bit more TLC and it's products that are for them that are going to, again, like I so said, we do book packages and we do cashmere socks and just lots of things that are, are really comforting. But the the buyer can kind of, 
put the package together as they want. So we have some set packages and then some that are completely bespoke and so you can make it really personal and it has your handwritten tag message and stuff. And I think all of that adds up to it being just a really personal experience where where the person who's receiving it is like, this was, they thought about me. It wasn't about being showy or flash or any of those stuff. It was like, they just thought, oh, what does that person need? Um, and yeah, that was in 2014 we started and it's kind of, we're now seven years in. So you started up, obviously, as you say, being, you know, you were inspired by your experience of, of becoming a mum and, and, and things you got. And yeah, absolutely, I remember just like, oh, fuck knows what I was putting, like in carafes and things like that. I was just yeah. like, I've, got, I've got one vase, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, this is really generous because that's the thing. I don't mean to sound just really ungrateful, mm. but you're like, this is mental. What am I going to do with this? Yeah. But do you know what? It never occurred to me before until I had a baby when actually my boss, the lovely Sarah Millican, sent me a text and said, I would like to send you some flowers. Would you like to receive them? Or will that be like a, a bit of a pain Maybe. in the ass for you? And I was like, I quite like them actually. Thanks. Yeah. But <laughs> it would never have occurred to me before that receiving flowers might be a bit of a ball ache. Yeah. And a friend of mine told me recently that after her, her mum died, receiving flowers was just the last thing that she wanted yeah. because not only did she then have to do something with them, but she had to then watch them die, which made yeah. her feel like even more depressed. So I wondered, what kinds of things do you think are like a, a good alternative to flowers? if you want to buy someone something thoughtful yeah. and and caring i mean you're you're bang on because I, I had a message today from someone who who said that their mother-in-law died and they're surrounded by flowers and the problem is, is at that moment you can't turn around to everyone and go can you stop sending me fucking flowers because then you sound really ungrateful so it's kind of there's a whole education piece there but i think <laughs> the products that do really well are things that are like I say they're going to encourage someone to take a bit of time so it's kind of the bubble bath or the bath salts the candles that you know really lovely candle the cashmere socks even we do like a gin and tonic and that and it's really lovely in a glass bottle but it's already made and it's like oh when you really want that good hit a good hit of gin but just sometimes <laughs> this is ridiculous but sometimes I'll opt for wine because I can't be bothered to make a gin and tonic, but I'd much rather have a gin and tonic. So it's just, it's it's that, it's those kinds of things. But I think what we also find, because you can create your own, I think a lot of hamper type companies will have like, it'll be all beauty or all food. And actually ours, most of our packages, people pick from different categories. So it'll be like something like really good chocolate buttons, a gin and tonic, cashmere socks, candle, and maybe like a book. So we're always changing up the book. So we have lots of, you know, new selection, but, books again it's the sort of thing where like I personally I read a lot more now but I for years when the kids were small I would read on holiday but I wouldn't read in between but actually it gives you real joy you know it gives you pleasure and it's and it takes you out of your life which you quite want to do when you've got small kids sometimes so I think it's again it's someone giving you permission like what I completely underestimated how that was going to be quite powerful without sounding like a total idiot but when you we would get messages from people saying it made it made them cry when they opened it because it's almost it's that permission of I know you need looking after and I want to help you do that that kind of thing which is more than it's not just a box of stuff you know it's like the, it's the tag message it's and it's really thought through 
but yeah, I think, and also we're all really bad at looking after ourselves and we're, I mean, especially at the moment, we're all strung out, overwhelmed, trying to deal with everything that's going on in the world as well as in your own house. And so I think that pausing and help someone helping you pause is kind of the key bit. Why do, I mean, maybe this is a massive generalisation because I'm sure like some men and also you know not not to be too heteronormative or whatever but like I'm sure some people's husbands boyfriends partners whatever buy them great presents but some of them my dad to my mum when I was growing up one year I think for Christmas she got a deep fat fryer I mean if that doesn't yeah. scream don't my mum got a sieve one year and I think she was <laughs> you know, like oh that's not a gift for you is it that's that's not Anything household related is out because that's so it's got so many underlying meanings. Yeah, and, unless like you've specifically asked for it, I guess. But again, it's not very, it's not really like I'm thinking about you. Let's give you yeah, some yeah. time. Um, coincidentally, yeah. my parents are now divorced, but I'm sure it had nothing to do <laughs> with the deep fat fryer. Why do women always get such shit presents? Like, wh- why? Yeah, I think, well, I think when women buy for other women, they tend to be much better. So what we're really talking about here is men not being very good at buying gifts. Do you know what? It's been really interesting because we've seen our male customer base grow, but they tend to do things like they'll put together this selection and then they'll not do the tag message. And the tag message is like, you know, that's the bit that the person receives and goes, oh, they've really thought of me. Even if you just write on it, you know, I think you're wonderful. I love you. Anything. But quite often they don't. And we used to, when they, we were smaller and we were kind of dealing with everything really personally, you'd call up the person and say, oh, by the way, you, you didn't include a tag message you want me to include. Oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to give it to her. And it was like, oh, you're totally missing the point. That she <laughs> just loves some words that tell her that she's fucking great. I think it's really interesting that you and you do get some some people get it and once they get it then they're like oh when they get the feedback they almost need that to realize that they're onto something when they buy a thoughtful gift but yeah I mean my husband can be pretty dreadful it's the last minute as well it's it's panic but do you know it's probably something to do with the fact that not that long ago in most households probably women did all the shopping for gifts like Mm-hmm. I refuse to buy any of my husband's. If he's buying presents for his family, I just, I completely step back. I don't remind him of birthdays or anything like that. But I know that's quite unusual. In a lot of couples, then they go and do the shopping for them or they send the card or they, and it's like, so men just don't have to. Screw that. I'm, that's not my job. I'm not, I'm not giving over myself to remember not only my own like family, but also his family. So. I've made a stand on that and I'm going to stand by it. I think fair enough. I, I, I think that's a good stand to, to take. So mm-hmm. Christmas is fast approaching. Do you have any kind of insight through your work as to top tips for buying for quote unquote difficult people and also mm-hmm. what you think makes a present thoughtful? It's the same thing. I think the thoughtfulness piece is thinking about what they actually want to receive really thinking about so if you are including food and drink like do they eat that do they have allergies do they like that drink and it doesn't take that much I mean sometimes if we're sending a gift to somebody maybe it's a journalist or something you can go through someone's bloody Instagram feed and find out oh they like champagne or oh they always drink a cocktail or whatever Mm. and and you know target it around that but I think the thoughtfulness is really down to working out what it is that they would love or need so 
going back to do they need to sit down do they need a bit of time to themselves do they you know when we've got more products that when we were in lockdown and stuff especially people that like things like crossword puzzles and were really popular especially people wanting to send to someone who's a bit older mm. so i think that's ultimately what it is and it's not sending them something because it's what you want to receive or because it's what you would like it's really looking at it from their perspective what kind of year are they having i mean christmas is classic for a lot of people and i would say especially women are really spent you like you've had the whole run up to christmas it's been you've been trying to finish stuff at work maybe your kids are off or you've had like I know I've had three emails today about a nativity thing and a <laughs> costume day and all that stuff. And it's mental. So by the time you actually get to Christmas, you're a bit crackers. So stuff that's going to encourage them again to have a bit of time is going to be really well received. I think we've seen as well, like corporate gifting. Again, the corporates that send the massive hampers of food and drink. Well, probably the one time of the year that you don't need loads of food and drink is Christmas because you've, you know, you've stocked up. But if your company were to say, I know you've worked really hard this year, do you, you know, I'd like to send you a face mask or, you know, some really good hand cream and a gin and tonic or whatever, that's going to be more well received. So again, it's that, and you can really see it from the companies that are kind of really thinking about what, what kind of year it's been. I mean, especially this year and going into this Christmas when it's still really unknown. There's never been a better time to buy someone hand cream. Is. <laughs> yeah, no. Can you imagine our, our sales of hand cream, especially March, March 2020, it went off, especially at that point where you couldn't move for people telling you to wash your hands. I know, I know. It was, it was, yeah, I think it was the time when, you know, we really put that moisturising hand wash thing to the test, didn't we? That, that yeah. They don't exist. It's not real. I know. I remember one of my kids came home and he had bleeding knuckles because oh. they'd taken it really seriously at school. But, you know, you're like... Have you never washed your hands before? Like, how come you're reacting so badly? To the hand I was a bit like probably, that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm not sure he made much effort on that before, but he was religiously doing it. But yeah, that, well, there's a product called Nursum, yes. and it was developed for nurse. That's the one that we include, and it's really good. It is really, really good product. Okay, so I've got one more question for you. Finally. I would like to ask you about vouchers. Now, I don't know, like, if you don't know what to buy someone, like, yeah. your brain just doesn't work in that kind of particular creative way. Where do you stand on vouchers? Because I have to say that many, many times I have wished I'd received vouchers instead <laughs> of what I received. What you received, so, yeah. Where, where do you stand on vouchers? Are vouchers a thoughtful present? I would argue if you don't know what to buy someone, yes, potentially they are. Do you know what? I think if you buy someone a voucher, but it comes with something, I think that that, so that it doesn't feel, and you know, so quite often it depends if it's like an email one and it's literally yeah, a Yeah, that's a bit crap, yeah. It's a bit, but I think you you want the joy of opening something. Like we do cook vouchers, which again, from the beginning, it's like, right, when you've had a baby, what yeah. do you need? You need a food delivery of food. Mm. But, because if someone buys a cookbatch, they buy other bits with it, so it comes with other things. I think that just feels a bit more like it's still really, it's really useful, and you've got the voucher, but it's not quite as cold as a voucher. <laughs> but you know, like my kids bloody love, like if they've got stuff from the grandparents, brilliant. They love a voucher because then they get to go and spend it themselves. I know it what you mean. Depends, 
when you get that email that someone's like printed off and like in in black and white, not even in color, and they've just like folded it in four and stuck it in an yes. envelope like happy christmas <laughs> yeah exactly okay. and also with adults and christmas it's a bit it can become like an exchange i don't know like what your family like yeah. but mine are my my mum i'm one of six so my mum gave up a long time ago on doing presents for the adults which because otherwise you're all grown up so if you really want something you, buy you it. probably buy it yeah so I think that whereas something that's a bit more got a meaning to it becomes more important, like, because, yeah, otherwise it's like, well, I'll give you a 50 quid voucher and you'll give me a 50 quid we voucher. We could have all just kept our 50 quids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why are we bothering? So I think that's, a, that's something I think I'm not a massive fan at Christmas when it becomes like you have to buy gifts for people when there's no, I don't know, then you, I want to, to feel something. I suppose that's probably where the business comes in like I want them to feel like I've really thought about them rather than oh I had you on my list I had to buy for them so here you go (laughs) now you're right it does all become um, a bit transactional maybe that's the thing we all need to think about at Christmas maybe Mm. you know do do we need to like all buy each other shit unless it's going to be thoughtful oh yeah I know families who literally send links People send around links like, "Oh, this is the thing that I would like," and I just think, "Oh, there's no." That's what I do. do you? It's like, my mum wants to know. She's like, "What yeah, do you want?" Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, if they're like, "Tell me what you want," but I think my mum one year. So my auntie passed away in her forties. One of my mum's sisters, and that year she was like, "It's over. I'm not doing presents. I can't." She's like, "We're going to do money for charity." But what they did do was we got together with all my cousins and my other auntie. And we did a secret Santa, but not a shit office one. It was like, you've got £10, this is your person, and it was all secret. But everyone made so much effort, because that was the only present that you had, apart from like for the grandchildren, that was the only present you had to buy. And it ended up being brilliant. Like, everyone opened it one at a time, everyone saw it, and it, some of them were really funny, and some of them were really like emotional. But it was it was thoughtful because the people were concentrating on that one present and it could only be 10 quid. So you couldn't go, well, I, you know, here's a trip to Dubai. <laughs> you know, you have to be limited. But it, well, I can really remember it. So maybe there's something in that. I'm not very good at buying presents, Steph, but I'm going to be better now because I'm going to take all of your advice and go and have a real think about it. So Steph, where can we find Don't Buy Her Flowers? And where can we find you if we'd like to follow you? Yeah, we're don'tbuyherflowers.com or Don't Buy Her Flowers on Instagram. And I am Steph underscore Don't Buy Her Flowers on Instagram. Steph, thank you very much for chatting to me. It's been, it's been joyful. Thank you. Merry Christmas! <laughs> <laughs> you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where the crowd goes wild as we discuss all things women's sport. And I'm sorry if I sound a bit like I'm whispering. My daughter is still very much here and asleep in the room next door. Big news this week is, of course, that Chelsea are the winners of a much-postponed Women's FA Cup and one with a fair bit of added meaning on this particular occasion. I mean, I say that, but... it wasn't actually even on the BBC Sport main stories as I checked on Monday night while writing this. I mean, why would you bother sticking it on the homepage when you could have a cancelled fight between the chap off Love Island and a YouTuber as your fifth from Top Story? Sexism, you fuckers, that's why. 
I'm not going to go on about this because, you know, I've got my blood pressure to think about, but also I don't want to turn the story into something else. But the BBC Sport website is an almost constant source of irritation to me. It absolutely fucking reeks of 25-year-olds called Simon or Tim, and it's 2021. Get some women in, auntie, or let the women you have in have an identity separate to Simon and Tim and have it reflected in your stories. Anyway, congratulations, Chelsea. Always a truly awful thing to find yourself saying, but as I've said before, Emma Hayes makes me want good things for them. So let's get the Emma Hayes appreciation bit out of the way. It's no secret that I love her. She's a fantastic coach, a brilliant pundit, and you know what? She seems like an all-round good egg in general. I've been massively impressed by her this year, not just in terms of the team's performance, but her absolute class after she was linked with a management role at a men's team, which would have made her the first ever female manager of a men's team in the English Football League. She said they couldn't afford her, and (laughs) I'm quite sure she was right. Also, with the research that her team have been pioneering around the impact of the menstrual cycle on female athletes, and her attitude to this, which was, it sounds stupid, but, you know, society, unapologetic. That's right, guys. Woman was unapologetic about bodily functions. Breaking fucking news. Also, the punditry. I've mentioned it already. She was brilliant at the Euros. And I talk about diversity in sports coverage all the time. It's one of my pet things. (coughs) Please pre-order my book. And she brought us an absolutely tremendous advertisement for that. Now, I wasn't going to go on about Emma Hayes, but it's also the first time Chelsea have completed a domestic treble. That is, they've won the League, the League Cup and the FA Cup this season. And, of course, they made it to the final of the Champions League as well. Their opponents, who I've not even mentioned yet, were Arsenal and they beat them 3-0 with a goal from Frank Kirby and a brace from Sam Kerr. And it was a convincing win. Never mind, Arsenal, you've won the FA Cup a record 14 times. I'm sure you'll win again. So why was this particular match so meaningful, I hear you ask? Well, it's the 50th year of the FA Cup, or the Women's FA Cup, that is, and it took place 100 years to the day that women's football was banned by the FA. And by banned, for any of the nitpickers out there, I mean the FA banned women's teams from using FA-affiliated premises, pitches, etc., which is really tantamount to the same thing. Now... Why do I think this is particularly interesting, other than that, you know, it's sort of a nice headline? I think it's interesting because it's being heralded as some kind of momentous incident. Look, we got 40,000 people in Wembley for a women's football match when we've only really been going for 50 years kind of thing. And yes, great, good stuff. But let's look at the date of this match, December the 5th, a match that usually takes place in May. Why was it postponed by such a long time? Well, yes, COVID fucked everything, didn't it? Didn't it? Listener, when do you think the men's FA Cup final took place this year? Spoiler alert, it was exactly the same fucking time as it always takes place in May. The women's FA Cup matches have been lagging since football restarted after the COVID-enforced break, and the political will to get them played just hasn't been there in the same way that it has in the men's game. I'll draw your attention now, if I may, to Exhibit B, the prize money. For their victory, Chelsea took home £25,000. Which, like, isn't that what you get for four lottery numbers? Okay, look, I wouldn't sniff at twenty-five grand personally, but I bet Roman Abramovich probably pisses that up the wall on a Thursday night out. And more importantly, it is 1.4% of the prize money awarded to the winners of the men's competition, which is £1.8 million. 
You'll not be going to Pizza Express with that, will you, Roman? So, look, I'm not here to shit on your picnic. We have come a long way, but we have such a long way to go and we can show our appreciation to those very excellent players and help them move forward by turning up for more than just the headline matches. That's all from me this week and I'll be back with more women's sport next time. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Which film with the working title, Bankers, Wankers, <laughs> did we watch this week, Mick? This week, we watched Frank Capra's 1946 Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Clearly, at 75, it is an old film. And we've previously covered my Philistine attitude to old films in this very section. But It's a Wonderful Life small town of Bedford Falls always puts me in mind of the setting of one of my very favourite Christmas films, Gremlins, whose small town of Kingston Falls is very much George Bailey's Pottersville nightmare made real. It was off to a good noon and start, is what I'm saying. And indeed, It's a Wonderful Life has become a popular culture touchstone. But more on that in a bit. It's based on the 1943 short story and booklet. We don't, we don't get enough booklets anymore, do we? <laughs> the Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. We certainly don't get enough Van Doren Sterns anymore. Which itself is in turn loosely based on perhaps the most famous Christmas story of all time. Now, nah, not the birth of baby Jesus, but Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. I was going to say Bad Santa. <laughs> <laughs> by the time he made It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra was a motion picture darling, making his name with patriotic and sentimental celebrations of virtuous everyman who selflessly speak truth to power. James Stewart was a huge draw and Donna Reed was one to watch. Yet... Despite its legacy as one of the greatest films of all time, and despite its five Academy Award nominations at the time, It's a Wonderful Life initially flopped, not even managing to break even on its release. Critics weren't necessarily convinced either, and It's a Wonderful Life premiered at the Globe Theatre in New York on December 20, 1946, to mixed reviews. Most of the criticism aimed at it being way too sweet and simply sentimental, which I reckon is absolute horseshit. This film is fucking mm. terrifying and Pottersville is all too real, but we'll get to that. I mentioned at the top that It's a Wonderful Life has become a pop culture smash, and in fact, I thought I'd seen this film before, but it turns out I had never watched it all the way through until the twice I've seen it in the past week. It just felt really familiar because I'd seen snippets of it in, and this list is by no means exhaustive, Gremlins, The Muppets, The Simpsons, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Big Bang Theory, Beavis and Butthead, Cheers, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and of course, The Sopranos. It's basically become shorthand for Christmas, despite being filmed in a heatwave. Hannah, have you seen it before? Yes. All the way through? Yes. Tell me when you first saw it. I first saw it, I would say, probably I was maybe in my 20s, even though I was obviously aware of it because I was a really big Jimmy Stewart fan since I was about... <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> Wowzers! Somebody very annoyed that Hannah likes Jimmy Stewart more than them. Peggy has just jumped and parroted onto Anna's shoulder. That's going to sting, oh, mate. Me. That's going to sting. Bleeding. I'm bleeding. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> get off the fucking table. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like it up here. First time I saw it, I would say I was in my 20s. I was aware of it before then because I was a really big fan of Jimmy Stewart. I was. <laughs> She's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> she's found a new thing she likes to do 
Right, I've got to go and put her out. Give me one sec. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> it was impressive. When I was about seven or eight, I had tonsillitis. I had tonsillitis a lot, but this time my mum actually let me stay home from school. And I just lay on the sofa and was poorly. And in that time, I watched The African Queen and The Philadelphia Story. And I became mm. really, really, really into old black and white films. So, yeah, although I didn't see this until I was an adult, I actually do seem to have a fake memory of watching uh-huh. it when I was a kid, which is weird. But, yeah. I'm glad it's not just me, although you had seen it all the way through before, which is definitely uh, ahead of me on this one. Yeah. Okay, so here is the plot and I'm going to try very hard not to push my feelings about It's a Wonderful Life onto my summation of the plot. It's Christmas Eve in 1945 and George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart and the goodest guy in all of small town Bedford Falls, is contemplating taking his own life. The prayers of his very, very many friends and family reach um, God. I think it's God in space, although it turns out he did, of course, already know this was going to happen, but forgot. Omniscient, yes, infallible, apparently not. Anyway, God mustn't be that bothered about George, if we're honest, because he sends quite shit second-class angel Clarence (laughs) Oddbody, Henry Travers, who is seemingly more interested in his own personal advancement than saving the life of a man who's basically the definition of angry altruism. But first, Clarence must get a crash course in why George is worth saving. Here's George, aged 12, saving his little brother's life. Here he is a bit later, preventing the town's grieving druggist from accidentally poisoning a child. Here he is defending his dad's honour in front of avaricious town villain Henry Potter, Lionel Barrymore. Here he is at his brother's high school graduation, chatting up young Mary Hatch, it's Donna Reed, who, unlike him, really loves Bedford Falls. Here he is postponing his dream to travel to look after the Bailey brothers' building and loan after his dad dies. Here he is giving up on his dream to travel again because the building and loan company will fold without him. Here he is giving up on his dream to hand it over to his brother Harry so he can finally go (laughs) travelling. Here he is giving up on his dream honeymoon with new wife Mary and instead using the money to save the building and loan. Here he is geeing himself up to take the flat because his fucking idiot Uncle Billy has misplaced an envelope of $8,000 cash just as the bank examiner arrives at the building and loan. Here he is about to jump off a bridge because his life insurance policy means he's worth more dead than alive. Cue Clarence the shit angel who shows George how bad Bedford falls and the lives of those within it would be if George had never been born. It's now called Pottersville. What? The streets are littered with dens of iniquity. Neon signs everywhere. Mm. Harry died in that childhood accident. Mary is an old maid. The horror. George begs for his life back. And while he's been on the piss and knocking about with Clarence, Mary has sorted the financial drama by rallying the townspeople who donate enough to cover the missing $8,000. Phew. George can continue the life he um, clearly loved so very much. (laughs) So, do we think It's a Wonderful Life is an uplifting story of family, love, hope and redemption or something much darker? Dunleavy. Well, I told you what I thought this was when we talked about this on WhatsApp. Initially, when I first watched it, I suppose part of the reason it spoke to me is coming from a small town. You know, any characters that is so desperate to leave has your sympathy. I knew people who were happy to stay there and I used to think, I wish I could be like that. Mm. I literally wish I could be like that because it seems quite easy. Whereas being permanently dissatisfied is really hard. (laughs) And that's what I thought it was about. But recently... As you may or may not know, you know, Mickey, but people may or may not know, I've been doing a podcast about telly with my friend Paul Kirkley and we've been watching Band of Brothers 
and talking about it quite a lot and I've been doing a lot of sort of reading and interviewing people for it and it struck me when I was watching this this time that I think it's about survivor's guilt and I don't know if it's deliberately about survivor's guilt or whether it's accidentally about survivor's guilt but given that in 1946 there were millions of men all over the world Mm -hmm. who'd come home from a war and wondered why fate had saved them what was the point of them and this film kind of gives an answer yeah I think it's a good theory I don't think it's as optimistic a film as it's very much billed as. It's about coming to terms that life wasn't necessarily what you wanted from it, but, you know, you make the most of it and you do make a difference. Everyone does make a difference. So I suppose that's the that's the optimism in it, is that there would be a hole were you not here. Yeah. And maybe that's why it speaks to people sort of individually, because, I mean, the rallying around community stuff and all of that, that's because George is who George is. You know, if uh-huh. George wasn't, like, would they have rallied around him so much? I don't know. I think what it does really well is it really captures the fragility of human experience. And, it, you know, there's that reminder that it doesn't take much at all for everything to fall apart completely. Mm. And the tiny thing that sets the dominoes falling might well not be in our control at all. Might it not, Uncle Billy? Yeah, we've all got a fucking idiot uncle. <laughs> <laughs> that transition from life is just plodding along, George is doing his thing to shit, I'm going to throw myself off a bridge is very fast. Mm. I also think it's quite suffocating. George didn't want any of the things that are in his life. He, he's been trying to escape this town forever and he's been very candid about it. And I think it's interesting that Mary, and we'll talk about how the film treats her like with the old maid librarian mm. scenario in a bit, but she does want to stay in Bedford Falls. All she's ever wanted is to marry George and live in that house. And her dream, her wish when she throws a stone at the glass, her wish comes true. Whereas George doesn't get anything he ever wanted. No, although he does get a nice house and children and lots of people would argue, maybe not me, but lots of people would argue that that is a reward in itself, even if you didn't know you wanted it till it came. Yeah, and he becomes a good man by doing the things and staying when he doesn't want to. That's the bedrock of how he becomes a good man. But I've got to say, in that final scene that's full of joy because George has been saved, Jimmy Stewart's expression, and I love Jimmy Stewart as well, I think he's absolutely outstanding in this, but it veers between joyful and fecking terrified. He's, he's He's on the cusp of something there, I think. Perfect, because he's America's every man, isn't he? And and Jimmy Stewart had been to war. So I probably spoke to him as much as it spoke to anybody else as a sort of message. I don't think he does chemistry very well. In fact, I'd argue the only chemistry he ever gets is with Catherine Hepburn in a Philadelphia story. But yeah, in terms of, of acting, yeah, his face is always a picture. And also, even though obviously one of my problems with old films that we've discussed before is I don't like how very formal the kind of delivery of lines and stuff is. But mm. given that this is 75 years old, some of the lines, particularly Stuart's delivery of them, is really naturalistic. Yeah. And he's playing a, a, a pretty wide range of ages. And yeah. he, he does a convincing 18-year-old lad. Maybe not to look at, but in demeanour and all of that. In mischief. Yeah. And those things. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, though, about the chemistry. The scene that just does not work for me at all is when they sort of matchmake and fall in love Mm. and i'm just like it's just really angry don't get together (laughs) you just seem really angry shall we talk about mary 
what am I going to say about a character who whose other option is the absolute social death of never marrying, you know, and working with books? I mean, how fucking dreadful. But this film was made in the 1940s, so I suppose that probably was what happened to you if you didn't get married, was that people thought that you were just sad and lonely. I wondered if there was part of it, though, that was to reinforce that that's how it should be after a war that meant women had had to step up and had done really well at stepping up and doing stuff without having a man. Yeah, good point. Trying to get us back into, oh, well, that's the only thing that'll ever complete my life. Yeah. I mean, it makes me laugh that she she does up the house and you see her, like, putting up wallpaper, which, granted, is quite hard, but, you know, there were some way more structural things wrong with that house. (laughs) I mean, that really was wallpapering while Rome burned. So, yeah, I mean, she was quite handy. She was quite practical. She didn't get on my nerves as a character, Mary, other than the intrinsic getting on my nerves the same way that people I knew who were like, no, I like it here, I think I'll stay. Yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why don't you want to leave? I mean, I guess the question I haven't asked, but I, I think it's because I already know the answer is, do, do you like it? Do you like the film? Oh, yeah, I love it. Mm. Yeah, I genuinely love it. And I think it is one of those things... The fact that it does get talked about all the time in such a sentimental way because of its association with Christmas, not least. I think people who haven't seen it expect something different from it. It's not smaltzy. It's not any of the things that that perhaps you might think it would be. But it is really, I don't know, it is really comforting. It is. I I find it quite comforting. But that just might be Jim and Stewart, to be honest. The central notion that we all have a place in the world is quite comforting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Do you, I mean, did you like it? Because you initially told me you didn't think you were going to like it. I know, it's because I don't do old films. It's because I don't like that yeah. formal delivery. I also genuinely thought I'd seen it and it hadn't made much of an impression, but it turns out because I've seen it in 20-second slots over a period of 30 yeah. years. And that is not how to watch a film, people. I really liked it. It wasn't what I was expecting because I thought it was going to be quite twee because I guess the scene that gets put into those pop culture references the most is, hello, Merry Christmas, Bradford Falls, and he's running through the snow and he's yeah. all excited and, you know. Way to go, Clarence. And actually, the fact that it is, it's pretty dark. The bit where he's shown what Bedford Falls would be like if he hadn't ever been born, Verge is on a horror movie. They go off into the yeah. graveyard and, yeah, it was a lot darker than I was expecting and I really liked it and I, I love Jimmy Stewart in loads of things. What I think is interesting about it is the problem's fixed, but it doesn't get fixed in the way that it deserves to be fixed. Yeah, Potter is still a bad guy. He still keeps that cash. Potter's still £8,000 up. Yeah. yeah. And everyone's had to put their hands into their pockets to do it. There is divide. There is a deus ex machina at the end of it, but it's not that Potter gets a soul or grows a conscience or any of those things. So the sort of underlying message of it, like I said at the start, bankers, wankers, yep. is is evergreen. How wrong it is for people's security to be threatened in such a fundamental way that they don't know where they're going to live from one minute to the next was wrong then and it remains wrong now. Yeah. And I'd hazard hazard a guess that Bedford Falls was as unrealistic then as it is now and actually the reality was much more likely to be Pottersville. There's been the depression. Huge chunks of the population were on the fucking road, on the move around America, like trying to find work. It is a sort of chocolate box or whatever you want to call it version. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 
Mm. This is quite interesting. Though their collective filmographies consist of like more than 200 movies, Capra, Stewart and Reed have all cited It's a Wonderful Life as their favourite movie. And in his autobiography, Capra took that praise a little bit further and he said, I thought it was the greatest film I ever made. Better yet, I thought it was the greatest film anybody ever made. He's like a Brian Clough of the <laughs> cinema world, isn't he? And that's probably the greatest praise any director could hope to, to get there. <laughs> I've yeah. got one more thing about It's a Wonderful Life that made me feel a little bit sad, actually, and that is because I think if I did have a guardian angel, I think it wouldn't even be second class, be like third class, fourth class. Forget having wings, probably doesn't even have, I don't know, elbows, just really shit. Clarence is terrible. He is terrible. He looks like he's just fallen out of a pub. <laughs> most of the time to be honest i don't even know how he got that high up the waiting list to be an angel <laughs> i mean i think the assumption is that like we all get to be one eventually because it must be millions because every time a bell rings yeah an angel gets a, their wings every time peggy has a scratch it's like free for all <laughs> ding, 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 ding. yeah clark is the same just creating angels like, yeah willy-nilly wowzers i'm gonna call it that now Peggy, stop creating angels. <laughs> as long as she just keeps jumping on your shoulder like a parrot. I think, God, I think I'm bleeding from the shoulder, genuinely. <laughs> Clarence, someone needs help. Get down here. I can't believe she refused to be upstaged by Lyra. Big question. Not really a big question. Rated or dated? Oh, man, absolutely rated. Yeah, yeah, it's totally yeah. rated. Yeah. It's funny because I was expecting this to be one that you and I... Had a fight over, not a fight, obviously, <laughs> but you know. Well, almost in the same way that I don't, I don't even know why I decided this, but I thought you were going to be a bit sniffy about Jurassic Park. I think because you know you're much less of a philistine, you're much more of a film buff than me. So I thought you might be a bit sniffy. But turns out we don't know each other at all, Anna. I know. I know. Is it you on the wheels of steel next week? Yes, it is, and I picked for reasons none of which are particularly that I enjoy it but you know breakfast at tiffany's oh another old film standard issue for all women